Now today, friends, we come to this fourth chapter, and we saw last time that the walls of Jerusalem went up all the way around at the same time, because this man, Nehemiah, used a very special strategy. He's an ingenious fellow. And as we moved around the walls, we saw that different ones were allocated to a separate section. So as one built here, the wall went up all the way around. And we are told that it got about halfway up. The enemy saw that they could not use the weapon of the enemy, which is laughter, laugh at you first, then ridicule you openly before others. That didn't work. And so now they're going to deploy a new method to try to keep these people from building. And we're told, but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth or angry, and he took great indignation and mocked the Jews. The enemy now saw that laughing at them didn't stop them at all, and now he's going to use the weapon of ridicule before others, and they mocked the Jews. And the very interesting thing here is that the thing that he's mocking is that which was precious to God, but it's despised by Sanballat. And they began now to ridicule him before others. And notice what they did. He spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, "'What do these feeble Jews?' Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now, these questions which he asked were pertinent questions, and there were questions that even the children of Israel were asking themselves. They wondered if they'd be able to complete this task. Now, they use this as a weapon of ridicule, and this is the method that the enemy will use. Now, what is it that this man's going to do? Well, after they asked the questions, why, another one of the enemy, Tobiah the Ammonite, was with him, and he's a wisecracker, and he comes through with a little sarcastic remark. Has a touch of humor in it, by the way. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Now, a fox is a very light-footed animal. You know, a fox can walk over ground, not leave much of a track. A fox can run on a wall, not disturb a thing on it. And so the ridicule that this man Tobiah is using, why he says, why the feeble Jews are building a wall here, that even if a fox came along, light-footed as he is, why he'd knock down the wall. It's such a feeble wall. And after all, there were goldsmiths and apothecaries, druggists were out there building the wall, and even women. And so they ridicule all of this now. And believe me, this was discouraging for these people. So what is this man going to do? Well, the resource and the recourse of this man is prayer. Notice what he does. In verse 4, he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now, you see, the interesting thing is that these men were God's enemies as well as theirs. And the prayer they're making is a prayer under law. And under law, why, they had a perfect right to ask for justice. They had a right to ask that there be a righteous judgment made. And God intends to do that, friends. That's never been changed. But the Lord Jesus Christ has reversed it for those of us that are believers today so that we're told that we're not to use this method to pray for revenge. We're told very definitely, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. 
And we saw in Romans some time ago that we were told that a believer is not to revenge himself. He's not to get revenge at all. Paul said, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. Give place unto wrath. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, there's certain matters that we should turn over to the Lord, and he'll handle it. If you and I attempt to handle it, it means we're not walking by faith. There are certain things that I think we are to handle. And I think that it's quite evident that there is a time that a rebuke should be given. And Paul told the Corinthians to deal with that thing that was in the church that was wrong. And Paul, writing to a young preacher, the last thing he had to say was to Timothy, and he said to him, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. He says to him, reprove. That means convict. And he says, rebuke. That means to threaten. He says to exhort. That means to comfort. And the child of God is to use the sword of the Lord, which is the word of God. And that sword needs to be pushed into that thing which is corrupt and wrong in our lives. But it also is to be used to apply the bomb of Gilead to a broken heart. But there are times when today the rebuke should be delivered. And God help the preacher that is not being faithful in that connection. We're living in a day when people heap to themselves teachers with itching ears. They want a flowery message that just washes itself out into nothing and that does not deal with the sin in their lives and their indifference and that type of thing. And as a result, a great many so-called Bible churches have nothing in the world but just that which is sweet. And there's a lot of the Scripture that is sweet, but there's some of the Scripture that's bitter. And as a result, why, they never hear from that side at all. People think this is not one of the things that you should hear. But under law, my friend, they could pray, and this was their only resource and recourse. And they asked that justice be brought to pass. And under law, that's what they could do. And these men that were God's enemies, as well as these people's enemies, now what are they going to do after their prey? It's wonderful to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. But we're also told that we're to walk worthy down here. That Christian life is a walk. And we're also told that it's a warfare. And that we're to put on the whole armor of God. And as a result, why, the thing I want to know is, after they prayed, what did they do? Well, he tells us here, verse 6, So built we the wall. We did it. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. The people gave themselves to this, and they continued to build the wall. So the opposition here of ridicule, it's overcome by the people. But now they're going to move in another direction. The enemy is. And he finds out that these things won't work. So what is he going to do? Well, he's going to use another tactic, and he does here. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 4 of Nehemiah, I'm reading, but it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. Now, this really made them angry because they saw that their ridicule and laughing at them had not stopped these people from doing this thing. And they were continuing to go on. And as a result, why, they're going to use another tactic. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, or so, we made our prayer unto God. And here again, we have this man. Prayer is his resource and his recourse. It's watch and pray now. Will you notice? Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God. Now, what else did you do? It's wonderful today to use these pious platitudes when we back them up with something. Now, I know a great many people, they will say, well, we'll pray about it. Have you ever heard that given to you as an answer? You ask them to do something and say they'll pray about it. Well, what I want to know is what are you going to do after you pray? 
I asked a man when I was pastor to do something. He said, well, I'll pray about it. And I said, wait a minute. If that's your way of saying no to me, say it right now to my face and not get somebody else. But I said, I don't think you need to pray about this. Either you can do it or you can't do it. Either you will do it or you won't do it. And which is it? Well, he wouldn't do it, tell the truth. And he was just putting me off and uh, enabled me then to get somebody else. And there are a great many people like that. It's just mouthing pious platitudes. And there's a great deal of that that's going on. Now, these people prayed, and that's important. Sure, you're to pray about it, but what do you do after you pray? Well, he says, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God, and we set a watch against them day and night because of them. Now, this man Nehemiah could have uttered another very pious platitude, and that is, well, we're trusting the Lord. We won't do anything. That's the easy thing to do, and a great many people today doing nothing. They say, we're trusting the Lord. Well, what are you doing about it? If you trust in the Lord, you'll be doing something. So he knew the enemy was plotting to come against them. And what does he do? Well, he sets a watch. He's trusting God. But the way you trust God is to set a watch also. Now will you notice verse 10. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. Now, that's trouble within. And here is where you better be careful, because the devil won't hurt you from the outside. He'll hurt you, though, from the inside. And actually, this man, Nehemiah, didn't get angry until trouble was within. He got angry. But now here, it's the method of discouragement. I think this is one of the greatest weapons that Satan has today, discouragement for God's own. I have a letter that I received some time ago, and I've answered it. It was from a missionary way down in South America, in the jungle, working with a tribe down there. And this is their first term of service. It means they're a young couple. And they were very discouraged. They wrote and they said to me, I judge from what they said otherwise, that they were ready to come home. And they says, we were very much discouraged here, and you do not know what it means to listen to your program late at night down here in a foreign land with a people, and we don't understand them, and we can't understand their language yet. We're learning it. And they apparently were ready to just drop everything and come on home. And the devil, of course, was using that matter of discouragement. And, you know, we've got discouraged and we're ready to go off that radio station. And then the Lord, in a very marvelous way, he undertook for us. And we are able to continue on the station. And we are so glad we are because here's a couple there able now to listen to it. And we thank God for that. Oh, how wonderful the Lord is to us, friends. And he's certainly been wonderful to let us broadcast down there. And I wrote to this couple... They didn't ask for anything. They just wrote and explained what the program meant to them. And so I've just written to encourage them. My, the devil uses that. And he uses it in our lives many times. And in the midst of this discouragement, the enemy took advantage of it. And our adversaries said, I'm reading verse 11, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them, and slay them, and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times from all places, whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Now the enemy said, we're going to have a surprise attack. We're going to take you when you're not even looking for us. Well, now what's Nehemiah, what's his strategy going to be in answer to that? Listen to him now, verse 13. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Now, he put every man in the position where he could defend his own family. And that made him more comfortable 
when he's building, of course. If he's building the wall down there, and his family are back up away from him a distance, he doesn't know whether they're safe or not. So then he put them there with their families, and they had their swords with their spears and bows. Then he says, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles, to the rulers, to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Now, that's to be their motto. That's to be their rallying cry. How wonderful this was. Remember the Lord, the battle cry. You remember in the Spanish-American War? Our nation had a battle cry. Remember the Maine. World War I, it was remember the Lusitania. And in World War II, it was remember Pearl Harbor. Napoleon always used some victory to stir his soldiers up to fight. And it would be to remember some victory. And Paul the Apostle, in this second epistle that he wrote to the young preacher Timothy, and that was his swan song, he gave him a rallying cry. And the correct translation of Second Timothy 2.8 is, Remember Jesus Christ. That's the rallying cry of believers today. Remember the Lord here which is great and terrible and reverent, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. You defend yourself. That is the fact. It came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that they returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work. We could go back to work. Now the enemy retired. They found out he couldn't surprise us. But this man, Nehemiah, he still has a strategy. He's an ingenious fellow. I like him. I wish I had him around today. Verse 16, came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the Herbergians and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and the other hand he held a weapon. I love this. One hand he's got in it a trowel to build. In the other hand, he has in it a sword to defend himself. Now, these are the two weapons or instruments that should be in the hands of the believer today. The trowel building up yourself in your most holy faith. That's for inside. That's to build up yourself. Now, I disagree with a lot of these folk that say that when you're saved, you just to jump right out and start witnessing. My friend, I really don't think new converts ought to be used. I think they ought to be tested. I think they ought to know something. I think they ought to be able to say, Jesus saves and keeps and satisfies because I know it. I've experienced it. And so when somebody says to me, well, so-and-so was saved yesterday or last night, I said, well, fine. And somebody writes and tells me, I saved listening to your program yesterday. I say, fine. But let me hear from you in a year from today, or two years from today. That'd be important. You see, we need to be built up. The trowel needs to be in our hands. But there also needs to be the sower of the Spirit. That's important. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We need to use that also. We ought to have one in one hand and one in the other. Spurgeon got out a magazine years ago called The Sword and the Trowel. And I think it's still in existence. I was in Spurgeon's church, stood in his pulpit not long ago. Oh, what a great man of God he was. And he believed you ought to have both of these. We believe that today. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. So that what happened, and I said unto the nobles, to the rulers, to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. Wonderful, isn't it? He said now, I'll watch, and when I blow the trumpet, that's where you're to come, because then we'll meet the enemy head on. Now, he says, so we labored in the work. Half of them held the spears, 
from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. I don't know what union they belong to, but they sure work longer than eight hours from the rising of the sun till the stars appeared at night. Believe me, they were tired and weary in the work of the Lord. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, Let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. Now, those that had come from afar, like the men down in Jericho, he said, now you stay right here, close by, because we want you to be ready to guard at night. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes. And I'm just about ready to say to Nehemiah, boy, I bet you got dirty during that time. Oh, he says, I just want you to understand, saving that every one of them put off for washing. Nehemiah says, after all, we did take a bath. And that's when we took our clothes off. Otherwise, we never took them off to go to sleep. We kept them on. We were on guard all the time. Oh, to be clothed today with the armor of God. How wonderful it is. See, there's humor in the Bible, friends. Even in a crisis like this, the Lord inserted a little humor. Now, friends, we come to this marvelous fifth chapter of Nehemiah. And I just well say it now because I say it every day when we come to a new chapter. All the chapters of the Bible are marvelous chapters. Some seem to me, though, to be a little bit more marvelous than other chapters. Now, this fifth chapter here, we continue the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. And we've seen him meet the opposition. And the opposition has taken many forms. My, the devil is subtle. I think that today he's tempting those that are God's own and making it difficult for them. And he makes it very difficult here in this particular instance. Now, there's been all kinds of opposition that began at first with just laughing at them and then ridiculing them. And then there was open opposition to them, so much so that Nehemiah had to, as it were, put a trowel in one hand of those at work and a sword in the other hand. And that's the way that they built. And Nehemiah and those that were associated with him, they didn't even take off their clothes in those days, except he very frankly told us, as we took them off to watch, and after all, he said, you know, we got dirty. And now we see opposition coming from within. And actually, this is where the devil gets in his greatest blow. You will recall that when he couldn't destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was to join it. And we have here the fact that he now moves inside, and he's already caused discouragement to the people. And now he goes a step farther and there is conflict inside, there is trouble within. And here it is. I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 5 of Nehemiah. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We've mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We've borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Now, you see, human nature doesn't really change. And not only that, but though we are living today in an electronic age and a mechanical age, technological age, a space age. Actually, the problems are about the same. I think these technical devices merely multiply the problems and make them very thorny and very difficult to solve, maybe. But actually, they're about the same. The people now, they're so busy building the walls, they haven't had opportunity to carry on their own business and therefore, they've had to buy corn, and in doing it, they've had to mortgage their property. And some of them had to mortgage it in order to pay their taxes. Taxes were high in that day, you see. Now, the thing that was happening was that 
they were borrowing money from their own brethren. And we read in verse 5 that, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought under bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyard. Now, all of this time, that was this problem that was arising, and up to this time, Nehemiah did not know it. These folk wanted to build the walls of Jerusalem. They very quietly mortgaged their property to their brethren that were in the loaning business, you know. And the foes outside hadn't been able to hurt them. (laughs) But there must be love and harmony within. Now, this is something that came into the early church, you remember. The very beginning, Ananias and Sapphira. It has to do with money. I do not know why it has to be that way, but my friend, that's the way it is. And I've observed it. But you see, it's just the same old bromide. That is, figures don't lie, but liars will figure. And there's a certain way that even a CPA can present a financial statement that looks pretty good when in reality all the truth has not been told. And that happens actually in churches today, by the way. And that's the way the devil gets into churches. I've always noticed he comes in this way. And we find that this is the thing that actually Nehemiah had to deal with. And very frankly, he's wanting to deal with this thing that is causing them trouble. For instance, let me turn to a scripture over in Philippians 1, 27, 28. Only let your conversation, that is, your way of life, be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Now, Paul says, you let harmony be inside. Be honest in your dealings. Don't give in false reports and try to belittle a brother or to make him look bad. Tell the truth. (laughs) And when you tell the truth, it'll produce harmony, you see. Well, this is not producing harmony and love at all. And these are things that the Word of God, you see, deals with. It's a very practical matter, by the way. And good old practical James, he had to get in on this too. And he had this to say, For where, this is now James 3.16, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Lied about it, brought in confusion. And now, in this particular case... What has happened was these brethren borrowed money. And actually, they had to sell their sons and daughters into slavery, be for a period of time, but long enough probably to wreck their lives. And then they charged them interest. Now, this is legitimate interest. Usually, we think of it as excessive interest, but it really just means regular interest. But the interesting thing is, though it might be legitimate, is today in business... But it wasn't for Israel. God said they were not to charge their brethren. Now, up to this point, Nehemiah has kept his cool. He has been able to just go right along and bear with them patiently. But you know what happened now? Verse 6, listen to him. And I was very angry. Not just a little angry. He was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself. By the way, this is something for him to decide now. And so he thinks the matter through. And what does he do? I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, 
We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Right before the group, he exposed them. And I think that's the way it should be done when this type of thing comes. I think that a church should be warned if there are those that are not being honest in their dealings in the church and are moving in an underhand way. I think that that should be brought right out in the open. Now, let me tell you, Nehemiah brought it right out in the open. And he was angry. Somebody says, you shouldn't get angry. Paul says, be ye angry and sin not. It's only what you're angry about. If it's for your own personal welfare, it's wrong. I don't care what it is. But if you're angry because God's program and God's glory and God's name is being hurt and God's cause, then I'd say you can be angry and sin not. Now, this man's not being quiet about it. He's not acquiescent. He's not tacit. This man, he just speaks right out. And I think we ought to be stirred up to a righteous anger when we see things wrong today. This idea of being a fuddy-duddy, a mollycoddle, shilly-shally about things that are wrong inside the church. And a great many people say, well, we just don't want to disturb things. You don't? My friend, you better, because the devil has moved in on you, and he'll divide you as sure as anything. We should be stirred up to a righteous anger when the cause is right. My, I tell you, We need courage today. And if there's one thing that is needed in the church, it's conviction and courage on that which is right. You see, actually, outside, friends, right now, the church doesn't have a good name. And the world's passing us by. They're not coming our way anymore. This spiritual movement has been largely outside the church. Church has been playing church. And little group there have been having a good time. They're not reaching the lost today. The world's passing them by. And a preacher in the north said to me, and he gets angry. He says, you know, this thing makes me angry today. He said, you can't reach out and touch the lost today because they know of the hypocrisy and the dishonesty and the pious platitudes that are quoted inside the church when the world outside knows that they are not coming our way, friends. They want to know whether we are telling the truth or not, whether we're being honest in what we have to say. And I tell you, what you have to say may stir up some of the brethren. And I'm for stirring them up. And they need to be stirred up today. But we have too many cowards. They call themselves acting like Christians. You know we want to be sweet and nice. Well, may I say to you, that is absurd. A great many today are hiding their cowardice back of the fact they say, oh, I'm acting like a Christian. You're not. You're acting like a coward. Now, when this man, Nehemiah, brought this right out in the open, nobody was able to answer him. They had to keep quiet while he's there. The minute you leave, they're going to start, my friend, all the trouble they can, and they're going to give Nehemiah a lot of trouble when he goes back to Shushan the palace. But nevertheless, he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and he served God in his day and generation. Now will you notice, verse 9, Also I said it's not good that ye do, ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Now Christ is a reproach today in the world. But is he a reproach because of the conduct of the church and because of the conduct of believers and because of the conduct of you and of me? This is a question for us to ask ourselves. This man, Nehemiah, said, look, you are causing the enemy out there to blaspheme because of this. Now, verse 10, I likewise and my brethren and my service might exact of them money and corn, I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Now, I think today you'll find that this is the real test, and it sure was the test of Nehemiah. And he says, I was in a position where I could have got in on this. 
I could have been financially benefited by it. And I tell you, the grasping person today is after the last farthing. A great many people are putting the dollar ahead of God. And you can put a dime up in front of your eye, and you can't even see the sun. And there are a lot of folk that are looking at the world like that today. Now, notice what he does. Verse 11, Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. And you're not going to collect any more payments from them. Then said they, We will restore them, and will require nothing of them, so will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. And old Nehemiah, I love this fellow. He says, I don't believe you. You're going to have to sign on dotted line. And these are God's people, by the way. He said, I want you to sign on the dotted line. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I think I ever made in the ministry was to believe Christians. And I hate to say that, but friends, I've had a lot of experience. And somebody needs to talk very frank today. I've always figured, well, this man's a Christian, and I can believe it. I found out I couldn't believe it. And as one very outstanding Christian businessman, he's a real honest man, he said to me, he said, you know, McGee, I've got to the place where I don't even like to do business with Christians. I'd much rather do business with the man in the world because I'm going to watch him. But the Christian, I assume that he's going to be honest, and he's not always honest. May I say to you, I have really been taken in in my day just because I believe Christian. And we ought to be able to. But Nehemiah is very practical. He says, all right, you promise that you're going to return it. I don't believe you. Sign you on the dotted line. That's what I want you to do. Then notice 13. Also I shook my lap and said, so God shake out every man from his house, from his labor, that performeth not this promise. Even thus he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation, they said, Amen. And I think today it was said in the pulpit, something that is as strong as this, that I think the congregation today would say, Amen. Because, you know, it just takes one bad apple to spoil a whole barrel of apples. And you can put one skunk in a whole field full of cats. And believe me, that one little old skunk, he is going to louse up the whole outfit and give them all a bad name. And it'd be well to mark him out and get the bad apple out of the barrel and a skunk out of the field of cats. May I say to you, that's exactly what this man's doing. He's actually pronouncing a curse upon him. He just shook out his lap. I think this is a tremendous scene. It's a picturesque scene. It's a dramatic scene. Nehemiah with this long robe that he's wearing. Remember, he's a government official. And he had on a uniform. And he shook that out and he said right before that crowd, that's the way God will shake you out. And I'll shake you out if you don't make this good. And I say to you, that's a way to talk to them. Paul could say that, you know, the Galatians, I wish they were cut off at trouble, you. He said, I wish we could just absolutely cut them off. And that doesn't sound very good, does it? Well, what they were doing doesn't sound very good. Now we see something of the personal life of Nehemiah. And it's wonderful. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the twentieth year, even unto the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that is twelve years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. Now, he had a right to draw a salary. He did not. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people, had taken of them bread and wine, beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. My love, this man, Nehemiah, yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land. He didn't go into real estate speculation. He wasn't taking something on the side. And all my servants were gathered thither under the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. He said, I only took my expenses. That was all that I received. Also fowls were prepared for me. Then once in ten days, stores of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, O my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. You know, he didn't go into the real estate business. Not good and preachers go into business either. And this man was different from the other governors. Now, the people would forget him. That's the sad thing about today. That's what many a famous person has learned. The world will forget you. The people might forget, and alas, they do forget. But he asked God to remember him. Think upon me, my God. And you know, God... He doesn't remember our sins anymore, but he'll always remember your good work. Unless he forgets, he writes it down. Isn't it wonderful? Our God remembers. And Nehemiah asks him to remember. And after all, that's all that matters. Isn't he a wonderful man? Well, we'll follow on in the rebuilding of the walls next time as we come to the sixth chapter. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now today, friends, we return back to the sixth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We weren't in the sixth chapter, however, but we did finish the fifth chapter last time. Now this man, Nehemiah, has encountered about every form of opposition that is imaginable in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Satan has thrown in his pathway... Everything that is in his bag of tricks to cause this man to stumble and to fall and to fail in this endeavor. And he does the same thing with us today. Only many times in our experience, why he succeeds and we do fail. God doesn't want us to, and he's made every arrangement that we should not fail. But we do, but Nehemiah did not. And we now come to this sixth chapter. The wall is about finished. And we saw last time that the thing that hurt Nehemiah more than anything else was the fact that he was not accepting a salary. He was very unselfish. And he was making a great sacrifice to rebuild the wall. And then he found out that some of his brethren, especially among the nobles, They were in the real estate business, and they were in the loan business, and that they were making money out of the hardship of other folk and out of their difficulties. And as a result, this is the thing that made Nehemiah angry. But he got that straightened out, and he had to do it in a forthright manner. You can't pussyfoot around when you're dealing with those on the inside that are not being exactly honest and truthful. There are those today that are in our churches, friends, and we need to recognize that. When you hear somebody mouth a few pious platitudes and some very spiritual verbiage, it doesn't mean they're spiritual. It could be just a cover-up. You find out whether they've got their hand in the till, whether they are making money out of it, whether they are in on this. It's quite amusing and amazing to me that in some places you find some of the brethren, they sell all the real estate to the church that it buys. They handle all the business, but they do it at a profit, and at a very nice profit. They sell the insurance and all that. And you generally find that they're not very good in their giving, by the way. They are more interested in the dollar than they are in God's work. And that is the thing that actually hurts the Lord's cause today. Now, he got that straightened out. That doesn't mean that he's solved all the problems and that everything will be a bed of roses from here on, for it wasn't. 
Now, will you notice verse 1? Now it came to pass, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein. Notice now the honesty of this man. This man is like Nathaniel. There's no guile in him whatsoever. That is, he's not being subtle or clever. So many people today, again, like to use that method in church work, being very subtle. They don't tell you everything they should tell you, you know, about a certain matter. And I've already mentioned this. Reports are not full and complete. They're slanted. They're built up, filled in. And the truth is not told. How many times that happens today? Always appreciated, and I love my cancer doctor. He's a Christian. The very first thing he told me was this. When he suspected I had cancer, he said, Dr. McGee, I'm going to tell you the truth. Because if I don't, you wouldn't have confidence in me. And from that day to this, he has laid it on the line. When there wasn't any hope for him, at least it didn't look like it, he very frankly put it down there. He didn't attempt to paint a rosy picture. He didn't attempt to cover up. He told me like it was. And I've always appreciated that. I think that that is something that is needed today. In business, it's needed in social gatherings, and it's needed, I think, in the church. Of all places, it's certainly needed there. Now, I don't mean that that should cause us to be blunt and actually crude. If you're introduced to a lady and you don't have to tell her that she's beautiful if she's not beautiful. After all, I'm of the opinion you can't kid her anyway. She knows. You don't need to tell her that, but you could tell her that she makes good biscuits. That is, if she does make good biscuits. But we need today more honesty in our dealings one with another. And I love this man, Nehemiah, here. Now, Sanballat and Geshep and Tobiah, their enemies, and these three little playfellas, I want to tell you, they've caused a lot of trouble. They've heard that he had finished the wall. Now, notice what he says. Though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. He said, to tell the truth, they got the impression we were through. We weren't through. <laughs> they got the wrong report. It was exaggerated a little. And the honesty of Nehemiah is a tremendous thing. He's clairvoyant. You just see right through it. He's as clear as the noonday sun. He tells you like it is. Now notice that Sanballat and Geshem said unto me. Now they saw that their opposition had not failed. It's the same old story. When you can't fight City Hall, you join it. And so they said now, they said, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. Now, the place where they were going to meet is interesting. It was the plain of Ono, O in O. And you know what Nehemiah said? He said, Oh, no. <laughs> he said, You want to meet in Ono? All right. Oh, no. I'm not coming. And they thought to do him mischief. And so the idea was, they said, Now let's meet together and talk our differences over and see if we can't work this out. Now, their thought was that they were going to do him harm. They probably had attempt to slay him. So, what did he do? Well, verse 3, I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work. So, no use going into detail with that crowd. So, that I cannot come down. I don't need to tell you exactly what I'm doing. So, I can't come down. I'm doing a good work. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? And I love this man, Nehemiah, and I think that you've discovered that this man has such wonderful characteristics. He'd been successful, and therefore Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshep, they wanted to compromise. Now, he very frankly tells us he hadn't completed the wall. Now, the thing they wanted to do, they wanted him to come to neutral ground. 
to harm Nehemiah. Now, there are those today that want the church to compromise. They feel that you are very bigoted, you are very dogmatic, and if you don't meet with these folk, very candidly, a long time ago, I quit meeting with folk like that. I used to meet with them. But today, I only meet with those that will meet with me around the person of Christ. And you know, it's been wonderful. And I've met with some unusual groups, by the way. I have held meetings now, and, well, you'd just be amazed at some of the churches that we've been in today. And I'm in total disagreement with the organization and with some of the doctrine. But I find that some of these people are real believers. And I'll meet with anybody around the person of Christ if they'll meet like that. But I'm not prepared to meet with the enemy today at all. And I'll be very frank. I think William Jennings Bryan made a big mistake in meeting in Cleveland, Tennessee with Dara and debating this subject of evolution. Now, I think William Jennings Bryan walked all over Dara. I think that any honest person reading the debate has to come to the conclusion that William Jennings Bryan was on the winning side. But I think that the very fact he met with this man, that it was really a losing battle. And it's certainly been demonstrated since then that it was. And I don't think that you are going to be able to win an enemy by meeting with him like this. Now, that's my conviction on this. But I don't care what group he belongs to. As I said a moment ago, I've been in several churches that I'm sure that you'd be surprised that I'd go in. Well, I'll mention the group, Pentecostal. I've been now in several Pentecostal churches. Somebody says to me, why? Dr. McGee, you have been severe in your attack upon them. You've been very unlovely in the things you've said about them. That's right. But you know, I found out they believe in the person of Christ. They believe in his deity. They believe he died for their sin. Now, someday when we meet in the presence of Christ, and they're going to be there too, by the way, but they're going to agree with me in that day, and we're going to be in perfect agreement. Of course, they're going to have to be changed. And you know something? I'm going to have to be also. So I expect all of us will be making some changes relative to minor considerations. But we just can't meet with the enemy. That's the reason today I'm not joining organizations. I don't belong to any organization anymore. I'm an ordained minister, but I just don't meet with any organization at all. And as a result, I just go to all of them if they believe the Word of God. And if they believe in the deity of Christ, believe he died for his sins, I just meet with those people. And I don't care what label they got on. doesn't make any difference to me. And some of them have got some funny labels on them. But they believe, as I do about these things, I just have to meet with them. Now, let's move on here. The thing that Nehemiah said, he said, I'm doing a good work, and I don't have time to come down and waste my time with you. And God's people do not need to compromise today. This man takes an uncompromising attitude. Now we are told, verse 4, Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. They're persistent. This crowd's always persistent. And notice what happened then. If you want to know whether they really wanted to be friendly and compromise or not, notice this. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Now, It's couched in polite language, but, you know, it's a hook with bait on it, and it's a mean letter, and it contains a threat. Wherein was written, it's reported among the heathen, the Gentiles, and Gashmu saith it. And old Gashmu is ever with us. He's the fellow that is the worst gossip of all. And I've discovered that sometimes the worst gossip is a man, not a woman. And here was old Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. And what an awful thing to circulate about this man. 
And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. And now shall it be reported to the king according to these words, Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. See, he threatens Nehemiah. He said, Now this is the report we hear. Now we want to know whether it's true or not, because we're getting ready to pass this information on to the king. Well, my friend, why don't they wait until the gossip becomes fact, which it could never become? But why not determine whether it's factual or not before they pass the gossip on to the king? Not this crowd. They're not your friend, by the way. Now, and I sent unto them, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. You actually didn't hear them. You made these things up yourself. And this was a nice way that Nehemiah had of calling them liars. He said, you're a pack of liars. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hand. Nehemiah went to the Lord, and he said, Lord, they're doing this to weaken me and to hinder your work here. Strengthen my hands here. Now, he said, afterward I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delah, the son of Mehitabil, who was shut up, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life. I'll not go in. These friends, on the other hand, so-called friends, they pretend to have a great interest in him. They don't want him to risk his life, but they want him to do a very cowardly thing. This man, Nehemiah, had a real spiritual discernment. Verse 12, Lo, I perceive that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me. For Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. I tell you that this man, Nehemiah, is in the thick of plots and schemes to destroy him. And he says here, Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works, and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. And this man, Nehemiah, now, after he's called them a liar, and he's dealt with this crowd that pretended to be his friends, and I tell you, he's in a difficult spot. He's in between a rock and a hard place, but he turns to God. And now we find in verse 15, the wall was finished in 52 days. Verse 15, so the wall was finished in the 20th and 5th day of the month, Elo, in 50 and 2 days. It came to pass that when all of our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Only God could have accomplished this through them. Moreover, in those days... Now, notice here, the trouble's not over, even though it's finished. There's still danger. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many... Now, listen to this. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Aaron, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. So all this time, there was this playing footsie with the enemies of God. And it ushered in, actually, old Geshem and Sanballat said, Look to the nobles, we're your friends. That man Nehemiah, he's a hard bird to get along with. And we're trying to. And the sons and daughters met each other. They had little get-togethers. And as a result, why, there was intermarriage. And because of that, you see this fellow here, Tobiah, had a 
telephone right in to the walls of Jerusalem. And this wasn't good. And they reported his good deeds before me. So these kinfolk by marriage, they'd come to Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, you're so hard on Tobiah. He's really a lovely gentleman. And they began to tell of good deeds of his. And they uttered my words to him. In other words, they were acting as liaison officers, which means there were a bunch of tattletales. And everything Nehemiah would say and what went on, they went back and told Tobiah. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. And Tobiah says, I've heard what you're saying about me, and it's not true.